The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dr. Matthew Letterman, author of Forks Over Knives Family. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Letterman. Hey, thank you for having me. And can I call you Matthew? Yeah, I prefer that. <laughs> okay, good, great. Okay, Forks Over Knives Family, this is your new book. What, is, what, what does that mean, Forks Over Knives Family? What are we talking about? So it's a, a book aimed at reassuring parents um, that this is the type of diet you should be um, trying to encourage your family to eat. And it should start you know, before you're pregnant. You should follow this while you're pregnant. Um, as soon as your, your kids can eat food, this is the type of food to feed them. We got a lot of questions from parents when we were working with them. There's, there's a lot of books for adults out there, but they said, what about... What about my kids? Can I feed them this? When can I start? And uh, this was aimed to address that. Okay, so your first book, as we talked about a little bit before we got on the show, was uh, Forks Over Knives Plan, the New York Times bestselling author, a New York Times bestselling book, and uh, you're a New York Times bestselling author. And so now this book is more really strictly focusing on family, like you say. What do you start eating when you're pregnant? What do you give to your kids? It's a whole family plan. So are we, we're talking about plant a plant-based diet, um, what is that, and why is it yeah, so good for you, and why should we be feeding this stuff to our family or this food to our family? Right. right. So, so it's plant-based, uh, you know, whole, whole foods, plant-based. Plant-based just means focusing your diet around fruits and vegetables, uh, starchy vegetables, whole grains, some you know, legumes, some nuts and seeds, things like that. And you either eat those foods, combinations of those foods, or use those foods as the ingredients to make the same um, familiar dishes everybody loves, like tacos and stir-fry and burgers and pizza and pancakes. And we have all those recipes in the book. So it's, it's not just salads and steamed broccoli. It's actually really fun, familiar, delicious dishes with a, a slightly different, healthier ingredient set. And right, you're the using reason, the word healthier. Sorry, you say healthier. Uh, now, do we have to say, okay, what's the proof that this is healthier? Like, I'm somebody who I eat really well, but I also eat some meats, not very often, mm-hmm. but I do eat meat. I should not be in any meat. Why? I mean, what are the statistics in terms of why we should be eating this plant-based diet? Yeah, and I have the book in front of me, and it's, I mean, it looks great. The meals look easy to prepare and delicious and all of those kinds of things, but why should we be doing this? Yeah, so the... The main idea is that studies, studies show that eating a predominantly plant-based diet, whole foods plant-based, right? I'm, I'm not talking about vegan or junk food vegan type of diets where, you know, you could eat 
um, soda and, and and corn chips and and call that a a vegan diet. What I'm I'm talking about adding in those foods that I just discussed: fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes. And if you if you base your diet around that, studies show that um, you can reverse disease. You f- and and you know people feel better, more energy, and you actually can live longer. So that's you know even the the societies that you know have the you know the longest lived populations. They ate predominantly plant-based. Now, you, you know, and if you have animal products, you use them as a, a condiment or a flavoring, and you don't have to do that every meal. So, okay, so it's better for us, you're saying, and I think there are a lot of statistics, at least, uh, you know, I went online looking up some of these t- statistics, and I think one of the things they said, and I'd like you to comment on this, that most or many of the degenerative diseases that we suffer from now are based on, the fa- on our diet, on our poor diets. For instance, you know, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, all of those uh, could be, I don't know, about eradicated, but really reduced if we ate this kind of diet. Is that true? Yeah, so what's really exciting is that um, a lot of these diseases are a result of the food that we eat three or more times a day. So things like type 2 diabetes can reverse, heart disease can reverse, autoimmune diseases can improve or reverse, um, even... Um, uh, diseases like certain cancers can slow down. Some have, some have been reversed. I mean, the, the idea is that you um, have been hitting yourself in the hand with a hammer three times a day, and then you're looking for the pill and the procedure and the cream to make your hand feel better. Nothing really works well. And then your doctor finally says, why don't you stop hitting yourself in the hand with a hammer? Your hand starts feeling better immediately, and of course it does, and people wouldn't expect anything else. And, and that's what we've been doing with the Western diet is hitting ourselves with that three times a day. Because apparently if you look at other cultures like uh, in Asia, for instance, and uh, cultures where they I, ate primarily plant-based food as opposed to all the meats and stuff that we eat, they had very little of these kinds of degenerative diseases. Uh, there was another statistic that came up, too, that said that, you know, this generation is going to live not as long as the last generation. What, I'm not sure exactly which generations they were comparing because of the way we <clears throat> eat and we're obese and, uh, you know, and we suffer from all these diseases. And can we reverse, reverse that trend as well if we do the, the plant-based diet? Yeah, so that's the idea is that when people start eating foods, our, our body was designed to, to be fueled with, the diseases that come are associated with these other, the, the processed foods and the refined foods and the uh, very meat-centric diets, um, those, those all of a sudden improve. And we wouldn't, like I said, we wouldn't expect anything less. So what do we do, though? You're talking about families and kids, and I raised three boys, and I think they pretty well, maybe not quite as well as, you know, as you describe in the book, the way we should eat, but um, how do you get kids to eat that way? I understand you're starting, this is a family, you know, you want to get the whole family to eat with forks, not knives, the stuff that you have to cut, we don't need to be eating, right? So you start with, a, let's say, a pregnant woman. I mean, that's, you're starting from the very beginning. What should she be eating? And how should she start on this diet if she's never done that before? I mean, do you, you become pregnant and then immediately you switch over from your, you know, lousy diet that was <laughs> going to make you and your baby sick to something like this? How do you do that? Yeah, so 
the idea is um, to eat is add in as many of these healthier foods as possible. So if you're it doesn't matter. I wouldn't focus on what you you shouldn't eat as much as what you should be eating, and what and and pick the dishes that you like. And when you're pregnant, do the same thing. You're gonna have cravings for different foods. Pick the dishes you like and learn how to substitute healthier ingredients um, to make those dishes. That's what this that's what this book does, and that's that's really what I recommend to people. I you know, and I will even when we start working with patients. I'll, you know, because a lot of people say, well, I have to be 100%, you know, plant-based or vegan if I'm, and I say, forget about the labels right now. And, you know, if there's certain meals or certain things that you are, are deal breakers for you, and basically they use that as an excuse not to do the program at all, I say, put those down on a piece of paper. We write those down, and then whatever's left, I say, that's what I can play with now. So you put down how many times you want to go out to eat. They say two times a week. I, I give them three. That means I still have four four nights where I can do what I want with. And then I say, you know, how many other meals? You know, what meals don't you want? Oh, oh I will. they'll say, I do not want to give up, you know, pizza once. I say, okay, fine, have your pizza. But then I have all the other meals, you know, 16, 17, bunch of breakfast, lunches. We can play with those, and I can make those whatever I want. And now they're not, now they're excited because they're, you're not taking what's th- you know you're not threatening them to take away everything that in their mind is really important, and you get to they get to feel better and enjoy these these changes. And then what happens? It's really funny. Is all of a sudden they say, "Oh, well, that actually isn't that important. I'm feeling so good. This actually tastes much better than I thought." And they start to make changes other places. So. So that's the goal is is not to make this happen or coerce them to change everything right away, but to get them excited and want to make these changes. Well, and to feel good about it. Well, you just said stuff that they they think you want to get them away from the things that they uh, I forgot what the words you use, but that they want to that they want to eat. Uh, but you talk about in the book the dopamine pleasure cycle. What's that? Because we tend to want to eat things that make us feel good, and apparently, I mean the two. The primary things that make us feel the best are food and sex, or sex and food, depending on who you mm-hmm. are. So let's say, but we're talking about food. So, like we say, we want to, what makes what is that? Because that's the dopamine pleasure cycle has to do with that. We seek out foods that really make us feel good. How does this diet fit into that? Right. So what was what's interesting about that is that's that's our natural, our body's way of stimulating. Us and, and giving us the pleasure sensation in you know response to eating, so it wants to encourage that we seek out food, and this is you know evolutionarily beneficial, right? Because we'd have to risk risk our lives to go out looking for food, and you need some type of reward. If there wasn't, you would say, "Hey, I'm not going to risk my life there." So, so we have that natural dopamine um, release. To, to stimulate us and give us pleasure. Now, the, respond, the way that works is the more calorie-dense the food is, the more calories per pound in a, in a given amount of food, um, the more stimulation we get, the more dopamine uh, release, the more pleasure we, we feel in response. And I think that that's, that's a key piece of information because way back when you were choosing between the, the lettuce and the potato, and your lettuce is 70 calories per pound. The potato is four or 500 calories per pound. And it said, okay, if you eat the potato, you're going to get more stimulation, more dopamine, more pleasure sensation. So your body went for the potato, and that was great because you got four or five times more calories for that single uh, trip where you were risking your life. Versus if you went for the lettuce and you got the same amount of pleasure, you would go after the, or more pleasure, you would go after the lettuce and you're risking your life more and more times to get the same amount of calories. 
So basically, it's it's adapted to to stimulate us and give us pleasure in response to uh, picking in a more calorie dense food. The problem is now we have refined foods, we have processed foods that you're not you're not picking between seventy and four hundred calories per pound. You're now you know, forced to choose between the four hundred calorie per pound baked potato and the you know, 23, 2400 calories per pound, you know, chocolate cookie and the 2000 calorie per pound, you know, fried corn chips. And that's where you start to get into trouble because your body now gets significantly more pleasure, uh, almost like a drug. And, and, and your body chooses that and thinks it feels better when it eats that food. And it actually gets more dopamine response, just like you would from taking drugs. But it doesn't mean you actually feel better. You're actually getting sicker and unhealthier, you know, less healthy over the time. Also, the piece to that, it's also easier to eat that, and you're certainly not risking your life going to the grocery store to buy it. But once you <laughs> get it and you're sitting on your couch stuffing your safe with, you know, with a bag of potato chips, it's easier to eat. Maybe it's easier to eat. You know, you've got the list of the plant, whole food, plant, you know, the plant-based diet, the whole right. grains, the legumes, the tubers, the vegetables, fruits, and all those. They're a little bit more difficult to eat than that bag of potato chips, right? Or, you know, the Doritos or whatever oh. you're stuffing your face with. Yeah, and it depends what you mean by difficult, but I agree. All the forces are working against us, right? So our, our natural, what we've evolved with, our natural internal systems are telling us to eat the chips. The big industry is, you know, has commercials, and, and it's easier to get, and it's sometimes even um, cheaper depending on what you're buying. You know, so, so everything is working against us, and that's where the, thank God, as humans, we have the brain, brain power and ability to say, hey, there's a system in our body that's malfunctioning because, and it's actually not even malfunctioning. The food that we're putting in front of it is, it just has not used to. It doesn't register properly. And we know, okay, let's not fall into that pleasure trap. Let's be careful about that. And I assume if you're starting with the family and you start from the very beginning, literally, like you do in your book, and this book is about your family, right? This is about you and your wife, and she's the co-author of the book, and and your kids and how you've done it and been able to accomplish it, because it it has your, the the stories uh, include you and your own family. That is correct. We thought that would be helpful. We learned a lot. That's where there's a lot of practical advice in here, and that's what we learned, what works, what doesn't, what makes the transition easier, and all those tips and tricks are are very helpful, we've found. Patients really like hearing about it, so we say, let's put this in a book. Well, let's talk about that, because I like to hear your story, like you say, with your wife and her pregnancy and you know what were some of the kind of pitfalls to trying to stick to this kind of a diet or the or the pluses or how was it for you as the as the spouse yes so um interesting you know interestingly enough my wife had different um uh cravings for example we used to love uh frozen bananas and nut butters for dessert when she was pregnant she couldn't touch bananas you know so so it was, you know, sort of playing around with that. But there's always other options to have. And she, but she was able to still stick with a, a, a whole food, plant-based diet, and then just had to play around based on how she was feeling and what her cravings were, and uh, and did pretty well. You know, I mean, she would have a whole lemon every morning. I, I don't know how she did it, but that helped her, and she felt much better. Um, she would not do that anymore. But the idea is to sort of embrace the pregnancy and what's going on, but just keep certain boundaries as far as the, the type of foods. You're not going to eat processed food-like substances. You're going to eat whole plant foods as much as possible. 
How other physicians fit into it? Both of you are physicians. You're sophisticated, I mean, in a positive way in terms of information, obviously, and education. What about, like, just, you know, us, the average person, we don't have as much information as you do. I think one of the things you say in the book is you have to find a, a physician or an obstetrician or who's ever delivering your baby who's on your team who feels the same way about it as you do. Because if you don't, you're not going to be able to do this or follow this kind of a diet. Right, exactly. And the idea is that you don't need to find a doctor that's an expert that's going to educate you on all of this stuff. You could, there's enough resources out there, thanks to the Internet and books like these, that you can follow. You just need a doctor that's not going to tell you to not do this. Now, there might be an extenuating circumstance, but in general, um, in general, these are, these are healthy um, disease-preventing foods. And that's what, that's what people should be following. And if their doctor's telling them that they need to eat, you know, all of this meat because they need to get protein and iron or they need to um, uh, avoid X, Y, Z because they, they think that uh, it's harmful, but they, they don't really know. I mean, that's, that's what we found is that doctors, and all doctors will admit this, they were not taught nutrition in medical school or it was you know, an hour, two at, you know, I mean, it's very little education. So for them to be giving nutrition advice or for patients to expect their doctors to be experts in that is unreasonable. Yeah, although they, we do, I mean, even if it's unreasonable, I think that happens most of, exactly. of the time. Yeah, it is unreasonable. Exactly. And, and I know you, what, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, that's why doctors need to, and doctors don't like to do this, to, to tell you what they don't know. Um, but they need to say, hey, you know what, I'm not a nutrition expert, but I'll read this book or I'll look into these resources or I'll look at the studies that are cited throughout, you know, these books and articles. You know, it's all backed by the science, and that's what, you know, doctors need to do, and some doctors do that, and that's what's exciting. More and more are trying to and more and more are excited by this, and that's what, that would, that's what needs to keep happening. But patients need to be aware that many doctors do not, and they should look for the ones that do. And I think there are a lot of doctors. I've said this on the show. I mean, I have, I'm thinking of my own doctor. I hope they're not listening, but I, and I don't have that many because I am healthy. But they, yes, they need to be informed, but then they also have to set an example. And I would say at least half the doctors that I see don't look very healthy themselves. They're, you know, the average person is 25 pounds overweight, and I would say most of my physicians are at least 25 pounds overweight, especially the middle-aged ones, maybe not so much the younger ones. And I think that's a problem. You do have to set an yeah. example for your patients. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's like, you know, if your doctor was outside smoking, what would you, what would you think? Yeah. You know, you probably, you know, even if they were really smart, you probably wouldn't be, seeing them uh, to get your health advice. And I think, yeah. that, I think that that's important. And they don't, like I said, one of the issues is that doctors think, oh, patients can't do this, I'll never do it. But it's the way they're thinking about it, that's the problem. You know, everybody can find meals where they can eat more whole plant foods. Everybody can try dishes where they use more whole plant food ingredients. Everybody can do this. The problem is when they think of is all or nothing. That's when you get yourself into trouble. Exactly. I think that's what's good about your book because the second half of the book is all about these recipes that are fairly simple. I mean, they're easy to do. They look, you know, they, they, they're tasty. And when you get used to eating that way, when you, if you regress and go back, 
to eating all the other, the junk and maybe even the meats and stuff, you don't feel good. Your body, you, you just simply don't feel good if you can get yourself on this kind of a diet for a, an extended period of time. I, I, I agree with you. It's great. Okay, so now we, the pregnancy, but then we go, a baby is born. Now what? Breastfeeding, I think, is the best thing for the, at least usually under normal circumstances, first four to six months, let's say. Then you start introducing solid food. So with this diet, what do you do, family diet, what do we do with the newborn or with the, uh, the you know, yeah, with the newborn in terms of getting them into solid foods? What do we start with according to this diet? Right. So um, breastfeeding is by far you know, the healthiest food uh, you can give a, a newborn baby. And every every effort should be made to encourage and support breastfeeding. Once you're ready to um, once you're ready to introduce some solid foods, um, we give examples of those. We we tried uh, pureed sweet potato, and uh, our kids love that. There's different fruits. I mean, you 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 know, there's there's the starches and the fruits and some some uh, vegetables. You can blend all that up. And you can make uh, delicious dishes. So it's it's not that you're going to sit you know sit down an eight month old and give them the veggie burger, but you're going to use these you know these plant whole plant foods as the as the the food that you introduce. And I think a lot of people do that even on the Western diet. It's only later when they start switching them over to the the Twinkies and and the junk foods. I mean, you're not no one even on the Western diet starts their kid off with a soda you know, in a Twinkie or blends up a Twinkie in a blender and gives it to the kid. So, so I think we're all on the same page initially, and we sort of know these are the healthy foods, and then we sort of get derailed because that's what our, our parents did for us, and that's what our friends are eating, and that's what's on TV, and, and that's where we get into trouble. Yeah, so that's the difficult part. So you personally, your family, what did you do? Like with your kids, okay, they started off when you have control over what they eat. Obviously, when they're a newborn, you have control over it, and so they start to eat in other people's houses or other families' houses, then what happens? I mean, you've already started them off on the right track, I'm assuming, but then all this other kind of negative way of eating uh, and all the stuff, even at school or preschool or kindergarten, they give these kids less and less, but they give them junk for snack foods. So what do you do? What do you do with your own? What did you do with your kids? Well, we did a couple of things. One, we educated we educated them. I mean, at a very young age, they understand and they, they can understand if you talk to them, hey, these are foods that make us healthy, these are foods that are really good for us, and, and these are the foods that we want to eat as much as possible, guys. And then, you know, we're talking to the teachers, and we'll say, hey, you know, that's, and we went over the snacks, and, and we said, hey, we packed snacks for them to take, and we tried to, and we actually worked with the school, and the school has actually made healthier changes, healthier snack options, and is even uh, this year going to offer a plant-based option for kids that want that. So, so we're, you know, the schools are very open and interested. And when they go to friends' houses, a lot of them uh, are also interested. From you know, we, we're friends with the parents. And then, on, and then the the bottom line though is that the perfect is the enemy of the good. And if you're, and if they go to the birthday party and have some birthday cake, that that's happening on occasion. But the base of their diet is still the whole plant foods. And a lot of times when they're brought up or they've been eating this way for a while, they, they'll have a bite of the cake and they won't even like it. It tastes it doesn't taste very good to them. And if they do eat it, they have their piece and they you know they go back to eating this way. That's the problem is when you're eating birthday cake three times a day every day, they get into trouble. 
And the, and the other thing that I think is really important is when your kids are old enough, you don't want to force this on them. You don't want to take away their, their you know, need for autonomy. And I think it's helpful to come up to them and say, hey, I, I'm learning this information and about how the food can cause diseases and, and, and make us unhealthy and even die sooner. And what I, want, I really want to explore eating these healthier foods. And it looks like you can do it in a way that tastes great, too. You know, do you want to, can you watch this movie with us and we can talk about it? Here's the documentary. Let's, can we try making some of these recipes, pick some pictures that look good? And let's, let's try and do this together and, and learn this together. And, and that's what you want. That's the goal is to connect with them and, and uh, help them encourage, be encouraged to, to make these changes. Don't force it on them. So Especially eating has to be, order. it's literally a family affair and, and one yeah. to be taken seriously. Yeah, and they can watch the documentary, your documentary, Forks Over Knives. But also they have access to even more information that you can read your book, watch the documentary, and then go online and look at other things that validate or substantiate what you've been saying because they have access to a lot more information than kids did 20 years ago. Exactly, exactly. I mean, even um, large hospital systems are starting to support this and offer these type of foods and, and recommend these type of diets to their patients. I mean, it's really, it's really coming around and becoming mainstream now. This is not so alternative. Um, I have to ask you a question. What about, you mentioned snacking, but do you, it seems to me there is a lot more snacking. Is snacking necessary? I mean, when I went to school, we went to school, we didn't have to have a snack every five minutes, so we wasn't concerned about the quality <laughs> or what the snack was. You kind of, you went to school, you had lunch, you came home, and maybe you had a snack when you came home, but this whole snacking thing that you have, you can't go on, you know, you can't drive your kids around in the car without a snack. You can't do anything with, you're going to a sports event, you have to have a snack. Do we, maybe we should cut down on the snacks. Yeah, I think I want, most importantly, it's what you're using to, uh, as the snack foods. Um, one of the things is kids, our kids, for, for example, love playing. So they sit still just enough to not be ravenous anymore, but they don't have the patience to fill themselves up, so they tend to snack a little bit more. But the idea is that the snack foods are just as healthy as the, the uh, you know, dinner or breakfast or lunch so that they can choose what they want. Now, we still have a dinner time where even if you're not hungry, we're asking you to sit with us. But if they wanted to eat an hour before dinner, we don't have a rule where you can't eat because you're going to, quote, unquote, ruin your dinner like I did growing up because the food they eat an hour before dinner is just as healthy as their dinner. So it's more, you know, let them decide when they're hungry and how much they want to eat and when to stop eating. And then, and then you just make sure what, what they choose whenever they are hungry is really health-promoting. And we've been talking kind of generally, but in terms of your own family, maybe just in terms of some of the patients that you have, what's the most difficult situation or scenario you have had to kind of overcome either with your own kids so that they will stick to this diet and or your patients? Well, it hasn't been hard for our children in the sense that they were brought, they don't know anything else. We don't buy food in the house that's not health you know, promoting. We don't make dishes that... Um, you know, our, it's not like we're making you know regular Western style burgers. We're making the burgers that are in these books. So they don't know any different. In fact, they don't even like the other foods if they ever try them uh, because they just want what's familiar. Just like your kids, I'm sure they were used to a certain dish, and if you made it a different way, they they say, "Oh, this doesn't taste right." So, so I think that from our perspective, it's it's been a little bit easier. Um, because we started when they were young, and that's why getting parents when they're and they and kids tend to eat what their parents eat. 
So if we can get the parents to change and do that when they're pregnant, and then uh, as soon as the baby's born, that's the food that they're around. That's what they know. Uh, much, it's much easier. But that's not to say that kids can't change. We see lots of families that are changing, and the kids are excited when they're empowered. And the, as far as the hardest situation from a patient exp- uh, perspective, uh, it's usually when one of the um, when the patient's willing or excited, but the significant other is uh, refuses to be open to it. And I think that there's um, what what we find is that that takes time to understand what their needs are, and we talk about this in the book as well. But everybody has certain needs for autonomy, and they want the food to be easy, and they want to um, have get enough pleasure and, and make sure that you know the food tastes good to them. And in their minds, one of those needs is being compromised, and they don't. And the strategy of eating this way um, is something that's threatening to them. Yeah. So we, what I do is I say, you know, will you be willing, are you willing to uh, just take some time to sort of go over what your needs are and explore um, how you're, uh, you know, what's the most effective way to meet those? And maybe there's a more effective way to meet all of those needs. I don't want to not meet any of them, but do it in a way that's less costly to you. And a lot of times, as long as I don't push it on them and we have those conversations and explore that, they, they become open over time. And that's where a social worker can step in, because <laughs> I think that's. <laughs> and now that's where we're going to end the show because we've we're reached the end of the half hour. But it, it has been great talking to you. It is a great book, by the way. You can buy it, forks and not over forks over nice family. You can buy it online, bookstores everywhere, and uh, uh, Dr. Letterman, a website that we can go to if we want more information about you and the book. Uh, ForksOverKnives.com is a great website with lots of great resources. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Great talking to you. Hey, thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Alice D. Domer, Ph.D., and author of Finding Calm for the Expectant Mom. Welcome to the show. And I know, Alice, I'm to call you Allie because that's what everybody <laughs> calls you. <laughs> yes. All right. So, Allie, yes. uh, Finding Calm for the Expectant Mother, what does that mean? You know, it's, I guess the implication is that mothers who are expecting are not necessarily that kind of Madonna kind of figure and calm and relaxed and sitting around waiting for their baby to be born. That's really not the case. Well, you know, I've been a therapist for almost 30 years, and I do a lot of, of counseling of people going through infertility. And so I, you know, I see a lot of women who are pregnant after infertility as well as women who are pregnant not after infertility. And what struck me and has struck me for so many years is that women who go through infertility are absolutely desperate to be pregnant, and yet many of them find being pregnancy really challenging. And it's hard to have your dream come true and then find it hard. And so I realized in talking to my non-infertility pregnant patients that, you know, there are clearly some women who have blissful pregnancies, and that's where we get the Madonna-like, the radiance, the happy you know, in my field, we call them surrogates because they <laughs> love being pregnant. Um, but I think what isn't really talked about, because people are almost ashamed to admit it, is that it, pregnancy can be hard. And for a lot of women, they feel embarrassed or guilty to complain. Um, and so I, I'd say half the reason I wrote the book was because I wanted pregnant women out there to realize that feeling ambivalent or being sick of your physical symptoms or you know, looking at your, the fact that you can't fit into your genes and feeling awful about it, those are all really normal reactions to pregnancy. But I want to normalize how challenging it is. And the second reason is there's this whole issue these days about whether or not it's safe to take antidepressants during pregnancy. And I wanted to tackle that in the book as well. Oh, let's get back, because you were talking about two populations, and I think for the first, I definitely can understand that, because here you, you, you've been infertile, you finally get pregnant, you'd feel really, one could feel really guilty about, well, this is what I asked for, this is what I've been doing, and all of the challenges, and now I, I have all these, like, doubts, and I feel stressed out, and so I really don't want to talk about it. The mm-hmm. second group, it would seem to me, maybe doesn't, it would be easier for them to, you know, discuss they're complain. Feel, yeah, complain. <laughs> you know, I feel fat. I can't fit into my jeans. I'm going to work. My suits don't fit, whatever it is, and, and be more maybe up front or out front or whatever about that. I don't know, because they are kind of emotionally two different groups, I would say. They are. They are, they are you know, it's interesting because physically they're not that different. I think emotionally yeah. they are two different groups. Yeah. But I still think in our – I mean, there are a lot of things in our society – like, you can't talk about miscarriage. That just is not done in our society. But I also think in our society, there's this pressure for a pregnant woman to be blissful. And it's interesting because I have a number of friends who are obstetricians, and I've had many patients who are obstetricians, and they tell me that all they do all day is hear pregnant women complain because it's the one place they feel safe complaining. Because I, I don't think people want to hear that it's, it can be awful to be pregnant. I remember with my first, both of my pregnancies, I had horrible nausea and vomiting. With my second one, with my child, Catherine, um, I was hospitalized because I, I couldn't stop vomiting. And yet people don't really want to hear about it. 
They don't want to hear that you're miserable when you're pregnant. It's supposed to be. And I, and I think that's just, I think it's peer pressure, societal pressure. And if you go on Facebook or anything, people don't post that they vomited seven times that day. You know, they, they post their still flat belly at 16 weeks. Or they show the pictures of the $600 stroller they just bought. Yeah. People don't tend to complain. Or the picture Probably. of them, and I see uh, particularly a lot of the younger women, I don't know if they call them millennials, uh, the pictures of them jogging and swimming yep. and climbing mountains and, you know, and, you know, I, I, making them, I look, still look beautiful or at least trying to maintain mm-hmm. that. Yeah, and you, that's what you do see on Facebook. You're right. But underlying that is really a lot of stress is what you're saying. Depre- Absolutely. Can, yeah, depression. Well, okay, so let's talk about, let's, you know, you're, one becomes, you're pregnant and you do feel stressful and you mm-hmm. are afraid to even maybe share it with your partner. Um, that's mm-hmm. an issue. Yeah. Uh, what, and so what do we do or how does the person or the, 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 the woman who is feeling stress and anxiety and maybe even, like you say on the cover of the book, mood swings, how do they handle it? What do they do? Well, as, as I said, I think one of the reasons I wrote the book was to normalize it. Like it's to, okay. To not, like to not put pressure on yourself to feel like you have to glow for <laughs> nine months. Because it, it's hard. You know what? Being pregnant is hard. I understand it's very natural. And I do understand there are probably a lot of people listening who think, what is she talking about? I had the most amazing pregnancy. And in fact, I remember when I, when I told a friend of mine that I was writing this book, she told me a story about herself. And she said that with her first pregnancy, she was terribly sick and, you know, felt nauseous and tired and just felt pretty lousy the whole pregnancy. And then, you know, her son was born and she was extremely happy, of course. And then, I don't know, three years later, she got pregnant again. And she was really happy about being pregnant. But of course, all the symptoms came back. And she mentioned to a coworker who had had like two blissful pregnancies that she was pregnant again. And the coworker said, you know, oh, right, I forgot you hate being pregnant. And my, my friend was like, you know, she hated the fact that she gave that impression but she was miserable. You know, she was physically miserable the whole time. And so it's not that you hate being pregnant. It's just uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to have to pee all the time. It's uncomfortable to be nauseous or vomiting. And, you know, a, a little spoken entity, and my colleague Jody Mandel just published a paper on this, is that pregnant women don't sleep. It, it's not just the first trimester when you have to pee all night. It's if she actually did a, a survey and found that the majority of women throughout their pregnancy, could not sleep well. If you don't sleep, you're going to get depressed and anxious. It's just sleep deprivation does that to you. And I think another thing, exactly, sleep, you don't sleep. And I think one of the things you mentioned earlier, I mean, I have three boys, so I had three pregnancies. All mm-hmm. uh, three pregnancies were very different. Is what, mm-hmm. You know, the first one was I, I really didn't, I was working full-time and I really didn't feel it. I mean, I really was just, uh, you know, not vomiting, not sick, felt pretty good. By the time, the second one, I was exhausted the whole time, which I didn't feel that way in the first one. And the third one, I was vomiting the whole time. So mm-hmm. they were all three different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And, you know, so in one woman, you can have a lot of different kinds of pregnancies. I mean, in terms of the experience, what, like, what are, I mean, uh, the question is, like, what are the other, let's talk about these 
triggers for stress during pregnancy. One of the things you mentioned, because uh, I think this, most women or many women are working now. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you've got your triggers and you get your stress when you're at home with your partner, with maybe other children, and just like you said, your body image, all, not sleeping, everything. But what about work? Because it would seem to me that could be really stressful, like what that coworker said, well, you hate being pregnant. Mm-hmm. I mean... How do you tell your boss you're pregnant? I mean, people have exactly. always... Yeah. That's a, that's, I, you know, I get asked that question about once a week from a patient, like, when and how do I tell my boss I'm pregnant? And, you know, my advice to them, for example, in terms of breaking the news, I mean, first of all, you probably should do it before you show because, you know, I understand there's, a, there's that gray period where people wonder if you've just eaten too much or if you're yeah, really pregnant. if you're just fat. <laughs> yeah, if you're just fat, if you're a little pouch. But I, I think it really is advisable to tell your boss. And... Well, you have to understand, and I just went through this with a patient of mine who's really good friends with her boss. They, like, socialize together. They're, like, really good friends. And so she was expecting, when she told him she was pregnant, that he'd be so happy for her, he'd be all excited, and he wasn't. He had a very sort of measured response. And I said to her, I said, you have to understand that personally, he might be thrilled for you. That's great that you get to have a baby. But professionally, he's going to be thinking of his division, his company, you know, who's going to cover for you while you're gone? Are you going to miss work because you're pregnant? Are you going to come back after your maternity leave? Are you going to screw the company and take maternity leave and then announce you're not coming back? Those are all the things a boss is thinking, no matter what your relationship with your boss is. And so, you know, I advise my patients is to think, you know, and it's really, it's a tough call. Are you going to go back after you have the baby? I mean, for some people, financially, they have to go back. It's not even a decision. I have a patient right now who's, who's really on the fence. She doesn't know if she wants to go back. She may want to t- take some time off. And I'm a big believer in not burning any bridges. So the worst thing you can do to a boss is go on maternity leave and two weeks before the end of your leave say, guess what, I'm not coming back. So, you know, before you tell your boss, you know, have an action plan. And actually I describe this in the book. And I say, you know, think about, you know, how are you going to be effective while you're pregnant? You know, who can you get in your you know, team or division or whatever, school, whatever you do, um, to support you so you can make sure everything gets done. What is your plan for your maternity leave? You know, how is your work going to get covered? You know, go in prepared with your boss to show that you're a team player, and that will make your boss have a much easier time. Um, What what complicates things is how you're feeling, sorry, when you're at work. I mean, you know, again, if you're someone who had a pregnancy like your third one where you're vomiting all the time, you know, if you're a teacher or a healthcare provider or you're in client meetings or you're in sales, it's sort of tough to run out of the room to throw up. I mean, it gets a little awkward, you know. It happened to me with my second pregnancy. It's not you know, professional. Yeah. It's not professional. Or, you know, what happens with you, you know, there's certain smells that trigger you feeling awful and you have you regular lunch meetings or dinner meetings where they serve meat, which can send most pregnant women screaming from the room. Or what if you have to pee every half hour and you're in a two-hour presentation? So the, the, pre- the pregnancy symptoms themselves can truly affect how, how you perform at work and how you okay. feel at work. Yeah, so the, the symptoms will dictate how you're going to behave. And you do have to behave differently, as you just said, like in a professional situation, as mm-hmm. say when you're with your partner or your family or your friends even. Ellie, you used to talk about the pregnant brain. What is that? <laughs> It's funny because there's this myth, which I personally don't believe it's a myth, but I was asked a couple of years ago to write an article on the pregnant brain. And the idea is that when women are pregnant, they get really spacey, they get really forgetful, they get mushy-brained. And so I actually, you know, surveyed all the literature. And actually in England, it's called porridge brain. 
Uh-huh, which I thought was very amusing. Yeah. But in fact, the research shows that it's only during the third trimester where women's you know, cognitive thinking abilities may be compromised. But in the first two trimesters, I suspect it's much more, you know, you're not getting enough sleep, you're distracted, you're not feeling well, you're really tired, and that can interfere. But it's not pregnancy or pregnancy hormones per se. In the third trimester, it, it may. <clears throat> Sorry. What about sex? And, pre- and when you're pregnant, sex and intimacy. I mean, that isn't something too much. Maybe it's changed now, but it's not something that I think that uh, at least my OBGYN talked about too much or you had to at least ask the question and be embarrassed about it. Maybe that's not true now. I don't know. Maybe things have changed, because that's an important part of it too. I mean, you may or may not be having sex or it changes your the kind of sex you have or the way you have sex or how often, because that affects you. I mean, this, we're talking about almost a year. Yep. And in fact, for a lot of women, right after they've had a baby, sex is the last thing they want to do. So maybe more than a year. Um, you know, I think that, you know, every woman needs to have a conversation with her obstetrician. So in the vast majority of pregnancies, obstetricians will, or nurse midwives will say, <clears throat> of course you can have sex. You know, just, you know, I, I heard one OB tell one of my patients, you can have sex throughout the pregnancy, but please don't do it in labor and delivery because it'll embarrass the nurses. <laughs> um, so... But I, I think sexuality is something that women also question when they're pregnant because their bodies are changing. And, you know, their breasts get bigger and their bellies grow and their hips grow. And so some, some women feel incredibly sexy and some women don't feel sexy at all. I've had patients tell me they have never felt sexier and never had as high a libido in their lives as they did, for example, during the second trimester of their pregnancy. They, they, they told me is that they because of the enough. estrogen or the, the surge of estrogen? I, I think it's everything. I mean, you know, you're sort of sprouting all over. And interestingly, a fair number of men are highly attracted to pregnant women. And so it may be a very good match that if a woman finds her libido going up when she's pregnant and her husband, you know, is really excited about her bigger breasts, it may be a really <laughs> great thing. You know, some men are afraid to have sex with their wives when they're pregnant because they're afraid it's going to hurt the baby. So I think that's a good time for the... For the, your, the, for the male partner to come in and see the OB or nurse midwife so he can be assured that it's perfectly safe and healthy for them to have sex during pregnancy. What about same-sex partners? I mean, I would think that maybe another woman would be more uh, understanding in terms of your body changes and what's happening to you. I mean, I don't know if you found that in your practice, or is there a difference between heterosexual couples and, and gay couples or lesbian couples? You know, I personally have not seen a big difference. Um, you know, it's sometimes complicated because it sort of depends on who's pregnant with whose eggs and where the sperm came from. And, <laughs> yeah, and combination you know, I, I, and permutation. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's rather amazing how many different permutations you can have. Yeah. I've had lesbian couples who are actually pregnant at the same time. Um, so that sort of complicates things. I don't advise that, by the way. I think that, that you know, having, in effect, then you end up having twins which is a big strain in a relationship. Um, I, or there I think could be, really, yeah. Go ahead, I'm sorry. I was going to say, or there could be, if you're pregnant and one feels great and the other woman feels awful, you know, kind of a competitive piece mm-hmm. to that too, a, a whole lot of stuff, I guess, a lot of triggers. And I don't think there's any way to predict how you are going to feel sexually when you're pregnant or how your partner is going to react to you. I mean, I've had some patients come in and say, my husband doesn't want to see me naked, um, which, you know... And again, depending on their body image, some of them are fine with that and some of them are really offended, that they're really excited 
that their body is changing as, as this baby grows. But that's a good, you know, that example, my husband or my partner, he doesn't want to see me naked. That's pretty mm-hmm. strong stuff, and that can make mm-hmm. you, let's say you're not feeling so good about yourself to begin with. How do you handle that? Because that's really, that could lead to a lot of, uh, I don't want to say necessarily depression, but really feeling bad about yourself if, if well, your partner thinks you look ugly or doesn't feel like they want to get near you. Well, I wouldn't say that that would be the healthiest of situations for a couple. <laughs> Um, you know, and, and I have to say these days, body image for women when they're pregnant, I think is getting to be a, even a bigger issue. And again, I think as a Facebook, I had a patient come in recently and say, you know, I think she'd gone to a wedding or some kind of family function, and she was just as pregnant as several other women there. And those women were still wearing, like, beautiful pleated pants or, you know, A-line skirts, and my patient was really showing. And people were commenting, like, oh, you know, you're 16 weeks and you're that big? And, you know, if you've got some body image issues, that's going to just propel you into a full-fledged anxiety attack. Um, And so what you do see is, is, you know, I literally had patients come in and show me pictures on Facebook of women who are 16, 18, 20 weeks pregnant who are still in their skinny jeans. And they, you know, they post those pictures very proudly. Say, look, I can still fit in in my skinny jeans at 20 weeks. Which, again, if your patient popped out of her jeans at six weeks, is not going to make her feel really good. Yeah, and so I think that, I, have, yeah, I would agree with you because I think that's actually something that, that I don't know if, well, I don't know what you would call it, but I think that really is a, a huge problem today. I mean, I see it not just on Facebook, but with my friends who have daughters or daughter in laws who are doing just what you're saying and they're really mm-hmm. trying to stay so skinny and in shape and mm-hmm. if you look at me from the back you can't even tell that I'm pregnant and mm-hmm. they are doing the same kinds of exercises. I wanted to ask you about that. The same kinds of exercises that they did before they were pregnant. And the rap is kind of well if you did it before and you're not trying something new, it's okay. Do you think that I mean I really question that but um, I and, talk and to obstetricians about that specifically because they'll usually say whatever you were doing before pregnancy, you can continue except for, you know, skydiving, you know, yeah. parachuting, right. horseback riding, I suspect skiing. They don't want people to fall. Um, but I, I tell all my patients, have a conversation specifically with your health care provider to see if what you're doing is safe. But, you know, there was a, it was on the news a couple of years ago that a woman ran a marathon, I think three weeks three weeks before her due date. And I got all this people like, wow. And then she literally went into labor at the end of the marathon. And I'm thinking, huh, you just brought a baby three weeks into the world, three weeks earlier than that baby might have been born because you ran a marathon, which would suggest to me maybe running a marathon when you're almost at term is not the greatest thing. Mm-hmm. Again, they sh- you know, people should talk to their OB or a nurse practitioner, a nurse midwife, to see what's the recommendations for them. But they do say that the more fit you are during pregnancy, the easier labor and delivery you will have and the easier it will be to get back to your pre-baby body. Um, although there, there is, I don't think there's any such thing as truly a pre-baby body because, you know, you're literally your, your foot size can change. Well, you can never I, go back again. I think there's always this, I always question that as well. I mean, you can't go back. You've already been through a process that's changed your mind, your brain, mm-hmm, your body, your family. Mm-hmm. How are you going to go back to the way it was before? You, you don't. You, you've well, evolved. I think, I think Princess Kate, who I understand has had, you know, really tough pregnancies in terms of nausea and vomiting. You know, you do see her in People magazine six or eight weeks after giving birth wearing her skinny jeans. And I have patients literally walking in and saying, I hate her. 
because <laughs> you know it's very it's very hard. Now another thing that someone told me recently is that you know how I think it's People Magazine does a body after baby issue. I think once a year, and everyone's like, "Oh my gosh, look at these celebrities! Look how amazing they look!" You know, a month or two after they had a baby, a fair number of celebrities apparently use uh, surrogate carriers. They wear fake baby bellies during their pregnancy, but they actually use surrogate carriers to carry the baby. And so, for them to have a perfect-looking body a month after their baby is born is not that much of an accomplishment. Do you have names for that? This is the first time I've heard that, and uh, that. They actually aren't carrying their own babies. It's just so that right. it's all like celebrity publicity stuff, right? And then well, no, I mean they they want to have a baby, but they don't want to be pregnant. I was actually told this by someone who is a is a therapist in in um, California, in Southern California, who who has counseled some of these people because you have to see a therapist if you're going to do a surrogacy arrangement. Um, and you know, I, I will not comment on each individual person's because it's a very individual decision. I have had several patients in my career who have had to do surrogacy for medical reasons. You know, you know, one of them had, you know, they have medical, they either have a medical condition where they can't be pregnant, or they're taking medicine where you can't take that medicine if you're pregnant, and so they've hired surrogates. And a few of them, for cultural reasons, had to pretend they were pregnant. And you, go, you can go online and you can buy baby bellies that are, you know, three months, four months, five months. I had a patient once who had, was having, tw- her surrogate was having twins, and so she had to buy a twin fake baby belly. You know, what it does is it sets up, I mean, I'm thinking of, of, the, of the women, your, your patients, the ones who are, you're really setting yourself up for mm-hmm. comparing yourself to something that doesn't exist. I mean, Bingo. And, yeah. Exactly right. Exactly right. That's pretty. That that's that's kind of that, that's very scary stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we only have a couple minutes left. Uh, so what do we want to leave our listeners with besides talk go out and buy the about, book? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, definitely buy the book. Um, yeah. Can we talk a little bit about what to do if you are depressed or if you've been on antidepressants in the past and what to do yeah. during pregnancy? Yeah, and how you handle that during your pregnancy? I think yes, that's a good topic to wind up with. What do you I mean, do? What, what I recommend is if somebody is planning to try to get pregnant and they're taking an antidepressant, that they have an evaluation with a mental health professional because 60% of women of childbearing age in this country who are on an antidepressant have actually never seen a mental health professional. And so you need somebody to really evaluate accurately whether or not your depression needs to be treated with medication. I mean, there are some risks to taking antidepressants, specifically SSRIs, before and during a pregnancy. And so you need to sit down with somebody and discuss that risk-benefit ratio for you. And the thing I think that frustrates me the most about this question, and people ask me this all the time, is, well, I've been on antidepressants. I can't survive without them. I'll just get depressed during pregnancy. And what everybody assumes is either you take medication or you do nothing. And the fact is there are a number of other things that are as effective, if not more effective, than medication. So cognitive behavior therapy head-to-head trials is just as effective as antidepressants in mild to moderately severe depression. And so I'll say to someone, let's maybe, you know, start you on cognitive behavior therapy and see if we can taper you off your meds and keep you healthy during your pregnancy. Excellent point. And it's true, we get into the all-or-nothing thing, and you can get depressed about that. You know, I have to make it. 
seemingly think I have to make a decision between taking meds or not taking meds and being depressed, but there is a lot in between. I think that's a really important point. Um, Alice Domar, or Allie, Ph.D., Finding <laughs> Calm for the Expectant Mom. Great book, practical book. Answer those questions. Maybe you don't want to ask anybody else, but at least you can start with the book because that's not threatening. You can buy it <laughs> at uh, Amazon and bookstores everywhere. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks so much, Catherine. I appreciate yeah. it. It was great having you. Uh, we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.